God damn you. It is a little strange that we have such an aversion to slavery uh, because historically there have been abuses for many people, poor people, perhaps people who weren't educated, perhaps people who had no other opportunity. Working for a gentle, caring, loving master was the best of all possible worlds. Campus is a loaded minefield. There are girls everywhere. It's guaranteed that I will pass some attractive girls as I walk in between classes. If it's not requiring her to sin, but simply hurting her, then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season, and she endures perhaps being smacked one night, and then she seeks help from the church. It would be hard for me to see how a woman could be a drill sergeant, right face, left face, keep your mouth shut, private, oh, oh, over, over men without violating their sense of manhood and her sense of womanhood. Go home. They want power, not equality. This is the highest location they can ascend to that power in the evangelical church. We are meaning makers and storytellers. And the stories we tell ourselves are the stories that shape our lives. We need each other badly or goodly. We need each other. And we keep forgetting again and again and again that we are loved. And we say, no, I'm no good. No, I messed it all up. No, I feel so guilty. No, I feel so ashamed. We need each other. In the midst of this difficult, dark, and often violent world, we need to have a community of support to which we can call all people and be a community of hope. Hello, friends, and welcome to a new year. 2022, and I started this at the end of 2021 and wanted to continue it on into 2022. We are now in our second week of 2022. This is usually the week when New Year's resolutions start to wear off, so I hope you're not feeling too much shame over uh, any commitments that you had made going in and and feeling gung-ho about the new year uh, that, that may you may be starting to second guess or starting to struggle with a little bit. But this is often a time where, you know, we're, we're excited about the new beginnings. We've also had some time of reflection on the year before. And so I wanted to start off before we get into the article today of just uh, reviewing a few things that happened for me and my writing over the year of 2021. So you may know I most of my articles that have been published have been published with an organization called Baptist News Global, and I've had some others uh, published over at like BioLogos and Center for Christogenesis and others. But the the main work that I'm doing is is article are articles that have been posted at Baptist News Global, and I also did a, a fellowship this last year after I graduated from Northern Seminary for Baptist News and and was able to get some good writing in there, too. So on the final week of 2021, Baptist News came out with their uh, top articles of the year. And um, 
for the news articles, because they have a few different sections, for the news articles, I actually was able to write the number three most read news article. And so this one was called, How Did an Openly Queer Artist Climb to the Number One on the Christian Music Charts? And this is about a, a band named Semler. And to me, this was a really fascinating story. You often don't think of queer artists being in Christian music, let alone climbing to the top uh, spot on the Christian music charts for their album. So it was a story that I thought would be interesting to to, to look into. So I interviewed the artist, and, and that's what that article was about. And so then most of my work has been in analysis pieces where I'm you know, analyzing a, a particular topic or story that's going on. And so out of the top 10 most read analysis pieces for BNG last year, I actually ended up with four of them. And so those were, uh, one of them was Pastor Greg Locke is all over the internet spreading conspiracies. Here's why you shouldn't believe him. And that was an interesting one. This guy, he's an independent Baptist preacher and he was leading up to January 6th. He was going, you know, all kinds of conspiracy stuff and really ratcheting up to the language. And then as soon as the insurrection happened, he, you know, acted like it was all the media and, and democratic plants and stuff. And so that was an interesting article. He, I, I was actually able to get a lot of his tweets in the article. And then uh, soon after the article was published, Twitter actually uh, got rid of his account. And so, uh, now, one of the only places you can get a lot of his tweets is that article. So if you're interested, uh, that is an article uh, that was one of the one of the four that I had in the top ten. The other one is was called I, I Lived in the Culture of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and there's one part of the story that's wrong. And that's about the, Mar the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast that Christianity Today has put out this year that was extremely popular. And I've gotten, um, this one is actually, I've gotten a lot of good feedback on this one. It, it's resonated with a lot of people. And I've actually been on a, a couple of other podcasts where they were uh, wanting to talk about this article. Um, one of them is on the Gravity Leadership podcast that uh, should be coming out here soon. I'm not sure when they're going to be posting that episode, but uh, look for it probably sometime in the next couple weeks or so. I'm not sure. And then I was also on another podcast called The Full Mutuality Podcast, talking about it uh, back in November. So uh, the, if you want to read that article, you can find it on my website, as well as some of those the links to those interviews. Also, um, there were two articles that I had written about two different documentaries called American Gospel. And so um, one of them is called Six Ways American Gospel is Small-Minded and Abusive. And then the other one is American Gospel, Christ Crucified is Stuck in a Time Warp. And so these are these were two different documentaries that were put out, and um, I critiqued those, and those have gotten a ton of views over this last year. So if you want to see, uh, that's a good overview, too, of, of a lot of the theology that I'm critiquing in this podcast. And so if you're interested in those articles, check those out. And then also, my um, in the opinion pieces... I ended up with the number three most read opinion piece, and it was called How John MacArthur Loves the Bible But Not His Neighbor. And this is uh, an article that has kind of, it's gotten probably some of the most vitriolic feedback that I've gotten. 
Uh, and but I, I think it's it's an important piece because MacArthur has really put himself at the center of a lot of the COVID controversies. And so this was more towards the beginning of those controversies. There's been a lot that has happened since then. But I'll actually be having episodes on all these articles throughout the year. And so eventually we'll get into deeper conversations about those. But if you want to read them now, because you know they were um, some of the more popular pieces, uh, you can check those out at my website, rickpidcock.com. So speaking of neighbors and uh, and how we fail to love our neighbors so often. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking about and, and reading through an article that I had written called How My Evangelical Theology Disconnected Me from My Black Neighbors and How I'm Healing. And this is one, uh, this is again before I was having articles published, so uh, this was just one that I'd put on my website, but it's gotten a lot of good feedback, and I wanted to share it with you today. In 2015, I was a huge conservative talk radio listener. Every day, I'd tune in to Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Dennis Prager, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, and Mark Levin. I was sold on everything they said. Then every few months, another black man would die at the hands of a police officer. And while I never would have admitted this, my initial gut reaction was not to grieve, but to turn on conservative talk radio to hear what these conservative white men thought about it so that I could have the right, quote-unquote, position on it. I figured the media was just trying to spin an anti-white narrative, that there, was, that there must have been something these black men did that caused this, and that once again, the black community would be proven to be wrong when the facts came out. Then these commentators would walk me through that very journey to discover how each story would follow that pattern. I said I wasn't racist, of course. I figured black people were just generally always wrong. My lack of awareness was stunning. That same year, I confidently walked up the sidewalk of a well-manicured front lawn toward the large dark wood door. It was finally time. My entire life, I had been longing for this moment, the beginning of a dream. I knocked on the door, was greeted by a lady from our large church that I had never met, and walked into the front room. It was, beginning, it was the beginning of a year-long journey with the 10,000 Fathers Worship School, which is an organization that exists to turn worship leaders into worship pastors through a discipleship-driven journey into character, competency, and community. Their promo videos were amazing, and I was sure they were going to love my wisdom about worship and my songwriting abilities. The evening began with dinner. Of course, I managed to sit next to the founder, Aaron, where I had the opportunity to share some of my really amazing stories, as well as a few of my theological nuggets of insight. Then we began our first session. Dave and Cameron tag-teamed that first evening. Dave had been the preacher for the college ministry where I had first saw Aaron leading worship 17 years prior, so the whole evening felt like poetic sovereignty to me. It was meant to be. I was reunited unexpectedly with two of the heroes that I looked up to years ago, even though they had never met me back then. God was controlling this whole situation to bring about something amazing. But then there was this moment. A moment forever imprinted on my heart. Dave said, You can only surrender as much as you know about yourself to as much as you know about God. As much as you know about yourself? 
That wasn't part of my sanctification, Christian spiritual growth formulas. But he did mention the concepts of surrender and knowing God, so that felt God-centered. He went on, You need to have God-awareness and self-awareness. Again, my mind stopped and focused on this strange new framework. I mused, Well, my God-awareness is totally fine, but I've never even thought about my self-awareness, so I guess that might be a good thing to do. As the evening went on, they eventually had us take out a sheet of paper and write down our top 10 high points and our top 10 hard times in life. My hard times were easy to write down, but difficult to narrow down to just 10. My high points seemed pretty cliche, as if I was filling in the right answers for a spiritual respectability test. And kind of surprisingly, it was hard to come up with 10. Then they had us rate the experiences on a scale of 1 to 10. My hard times were all 10s, but most of my high points were 2s and 3s with the obligatory wedding and births of children as the right answer of rating 10. We broke out into separate groups to discuss our thoughts, but I was kind of quiet. Then we went back to our next session. They had us then when we went back to our next session, they had us narrow down those 20 events to the top 10 impact moments overall. Of my top 10 moments, 8 were hard times. The two that were high points were the obligatory marriage and birth of kids answers. My heart began to pound. I had some very life-altering major events that didn't even make the list of the top 20. My high points, other than the two right answers, just seemed cheap and silly. My hard times were unbearable to look at. I wanted out. I tried to control my breath. Don't cry. Hold it down. But Dave just kept talking. And with every sentence he spoke, every diagram he drew, my heart began to break. Eventually, the evening ended. I wandered over to the same dining room table where I had sat next to Aaron during dinner and shared my amazing stories and amazing insights, but this time at the table, I wept. I cried hard, and I didn't care who saw. I remember how tight my eyes felt. I couldn't open them. About a minute later, I felt a warm hand on my shoulder. It was Dave. All I could say was, I had no idea how hurt I was. Over the next year, our coaches at 10,000 Fathers walked us through a journey of grieving our wounds and awakening to our wonders that had been planted within us as children, but had long been long buried. They introduced us to authors such as Henry Nouwen and Richard Rohr, and for the first time in my life, I was listening to people that I disagreed with. As my self-awareness began to deepen, my heart toward myself began to soften. I had no idea how many details of my life had been the fruit of subconscious pain, I had no idea how much of my theology had been adapted as a survival mechanism to numb my pain and suppress my wounds throughout my life. Donald Trump was my dream candidate. While I had fallen in love with George W. Bush's compassionate conservatism of the early 2000s, I had become weary of the tendency I felt among conservatives to get pushed around by the media and the Democrats. If only someone would come along that would bully those liberals. My theology only served to fuel this. I believed in a retributive theological system that said that God chose who gets to go to heaven, that God sends the rest to an eternal lake of fire to burn forever, and that it was all to the glory of God. Like the famous author and pastor John Piper, I believed that God gets glory when people burn in hell. John Piper is a huge fan of Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century preacher of sinners in the hands of an angry God, who said, quote, The God who holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you 
and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it to all eternity. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty merciless vengeance. And then, when you have so done, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains. Regarding how Christians will feel about that, Edwards said, quote, Indeed, the saints are not called upon to rejoice in having their revenge glutted, but in seeing justice executed, and in seeing the love and tenderness of God towards them manifested in his severity towards their enemies. In his book, Captive to Glory, John Piper extols the wisdom of Jonathan Edwards' delight in the just suffering of others with the following quote, Why the sufferings of the wicked will not cause grief to the righteous, but the contrary, he says, negatively, it will not be because the saints in heaven are the subjects of any ill disposition, but on the contrary, this rejoicing of theirs will be the fruit of an amiable and excellent disposition. It will be the fruit of a perfect holiness and conformity to Christ, the holy Lamb of God. The devil delights in the misery of men from cruelty and from envy and revenge, and because he delights in misery for its own sake, from a malice disposition." but it will be from exceedingly different principles, and for quite other reasons, that the just damnation of the wicked will be an occasion of rejoicing to the saints in glory. It will not be because they delight in seeing the misery of others absolutely considered. The damned, suffering divine vengeance, will be no occasion of joy to the saints merely as it is the misery of others, or because it is pleasant to them to behold the misery of others merely for its own sake, it is not to be understood that they are to rejoice in having their revenge glutted, but to rejoice in seeing the justice of God executed, and in seeing his love to them in executing it on his enemies. Positively, the sufferings of the damned will be no occasion of grief to the heavenly inhabitants, as they will have no love nor pity to the damned as such. It will be no argument of want, of a spirit of love in them, that they do not love the damned, for the heavenly inhabitants will know that it is not fit that they should love them, because they will know then that God has no love to them, nor pity for them. We are commanded to love wicked men and our enemies and persecutors, but this command doth not extend to the saints in glory with respect to the damned in hell. John Piper may want to draw a neat little line between us having no pity and love for people being set on fire by God forever while being required to have pity and love for their infinitely smaller temporary sufferings on this earth. But when your humanity is willing to accept the necessity of rejoicing in God executing the justice of, set on, of setting people on fire forever, it, is quite, it quite honestly seems a bit tough to get emotionally bothered by the pain they endure on the earth. How can humans, who are shaped by so many subconscious wonders and wounds, have the clarity of mind and purity of heart to distinguish Piper's neat little line between pitiless rejoicing over infinite pain and love for those same people within their finite temporary pain. 
My theology required me to rejoice in God executing justice against criminals. My politics told me that these black men were basically always criminals who were having justice executed upon them. So rather than grieving their deaths, I turned to conservative talk radio to confirm my political categorization of these black men so that my theology of God's glory would numb any shred of human grief I may have had. To complicate matters, we had a relative living with us during the 2016 election who was a huge Bernie Sanders supporter. For two years, I tried to get him to accept the views of my conservative talk radio show hosts. And while things occasionally got heated, we were surprisingly we surprisingly mostly got along. That was until we watched The Big Short, which explored the housing crash of 2008. We had felt that pain, we had felt the pain of that crash personally. The company that owned 80% of our mortgage foreclosed on our house, while the company that owned 20% of our mortgage got shafted and put a $47,000 debt on our credit report for the next 9 years. So we were already sensitive going into the movie. But no matter what personal pain we had experienced, I had to suppress it due to the political attack the movie was making on my rightness. I couldn't even see and grieve my own pain. While my journey with 10,000 Fathers had healed me to a degree, there was still so far to go. So that evening ended with me exploding about how Bernie Sanders was going to burn in hell forever. All I had wanted since I was a child was to be a full-time worship pastor at a church. The first time I ever sang a solo in church was nothing but the blood at age three, but I'd spent my 20s and half my 30s leading worship in churches that were, we were helping to start, as well as in a megachurch in a voluntary role. During these years, I had been cleaning floors and providing janitorial services so I could volunteer my time for the church, and my body was breaking down. After graduating from 10,000 Fathers, I was ready to begin looking for a full-time job leading worship in a church. But to get the job, I'd have to have all the right answers and positions. To make a long story less long, I was making it into, onto a number of churches' final lists. But then one church reached out and said that their leaders unanimously voted for me. It was a $70,000 job, and our lives were going to drastically change. But then, two weeks later, as I was in an abandoned grocery store scrubbing their blackened toilets... The church sent me an email saying how they felt awful but needed to take back the offer because they had originally promised their church that they would find somebody who had already been in a full-time lead role for the previous five years. My dream of being a worship pastor began to die that day, and included in that death was my need to have all the right answers. Suddenly, I could ask the questions I had been suppressing. While there were many theological questions that I could explore, deconstruct, and rebuild over the next four years, the most significant part of my journey had to do with seeing, knowing, and loving myself and my neighbor. I had believed in a theology that said that God doesn't look at us who are Christians, but that God looks at Jesus. God doesn't see our sin. God sees the obedience of Jesus. It's a concept that many Christians use to feel good about their relationship with God and hope that it will transform their sin issues. But subconsciously, it disconnected me from God and myself. If God wasn't that interested in looking at me, I figured, why should I look at myself? After all, isn't that just bringing glory to myself? I was a disconnected mess. Whenever I get, would get wounded in life, I would push through the trials with theological formulas about how the trials would point my mind to the glory of God. Then I'd think about that glory until my heart felt good again. My theology had become like a drug that merely numbed my symptoms. So while I felt good about being connected 
to God on some spreadsheet of Jesus' merit, I had no empathy for myself. After all, I was desperately wicked, totally depraved, righteous as filthy rags and dung, etc. My journey with 10,000 fathers gave me a taste for getting to know myself. I could finally see myself as beautiful, lovely, unique. I could see myself in the same way I instinctively saw my own kids. Could it be that God also saw me in the same way? Or is God just an infinitely bigger version of my unhealthy, disconnected self? And if God saw me like that, how would God see my neighbors? Over time, I began to see the beauty of my neighbors as well. I could see people as fellow human beings, as brothers and sisters with similar wonders and wounds as I had. I could catch glimpses of how they were subconsciously living out their wonders and wounds as I had, and how they were or were not becoming free. If I could now have empathy on myself, how could I not have empathy on my neighbor? Jesus said in Mark 12, 31, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The first step toward loving your neighbor is to love yourself. Of course, I had always heard preachers expound on this verse by saying, We all love ourselves because we're full of sin. We all put ourselves first, so we should put others first. But when I see the way American evangelicals talk about themselves, they don't love themselves. In fact, for many of them, they don't even see themselves. The theology says that God sees Jesus, not them. Instead of seeing and loving ourselves, we refuse to look at ourselves. We categorize ourselves. We condemn ourselves, including the healthy parts of us, as either filthy rags or dung or something Jesus did. That's not loving ourselves. That's living in guilt, shame, and fear. And if I were to treat my neighbors like that, I would not be loving them. We do have a massive problem with racism in America. And we also have a self-awareness problem in American evangelicalism. Most of the evangelicals I know would be mortified at the things I wrote about John Edwards and John Piper believe Christians rejoice over the just burning of our neighbors in hell. Yet John Piper remains one of the most influential theologians of American evangelicalism. His lack of empathy doesn't just appear in that conversation. It trickles down to the way he treats women, saying that they should not be police officers or even authorities over men in the workplace, that women shouldn't become physically fit that women should endure being beaten for an evening, and that women who don't see God as ordaining even the causality of their rape will be, quote, left with no God to help you, unquote. The theological abuse that pours from Piper's teaching is very disturbing, yet conservative evangelicals seem virtually totally unaware of these implications of his theology. They buy his books and adore him like he's their version of the Pope. The lack of humanity in evangelical theology cannot be disconnected from its views of eternal conscious torment in hell. For the evangelicals, like myself a few years ago, who believe that Christians will rejoice over God burning their neighbors, their humanity, like mine was, is virtually gone. Imagine rejoicing over your son or daughter being burned because it showed God to be gloriously just. For the evangelicals who believe God will wipe the memory of those they've loved on the earth from their minds in heaven in order to keep them from the pain of knowing their families and friends are burning, their humanity under that scenario will be gone. If your son or daughter was burning for hundreds of billions of years and they were totally wiped from your memory, you would cease to be the human you once were and your entire experience of reality in heaven would be a cover-up of what was actually happening. Imagine ever finding out that God was burning your child and hiding it from you. It sounds inhumane, right? 
Yet that's the solution many evangelicals use and label as heaven. When evangelicals are virtually unmoved by what they believe will be the infinite suffering of their neighbors, how can we accept them to be that deeply moved by the finite temporary suffering of their black neighbors? Yes, evangelicals need to hear about the historic and systemic issues our society has with race. But in addition to that, evangelicals need to be introduced to themselves. They need to get to know themselves as good, as beautiful, as worthy of love, as creative, as fun, as kids. When, we can, when they can see and love themselves in that way, they'll be healed and open to seeing and loving their neighbors too. In my journey with 10,000 Fathers, I was introduced to one of the other students named D. Wilson. He wrote and recorded an absolutely heartbreaking song with Common Hymnal in 2019 called Rose Petals. The lyrics say, The blood of my brother was spilled in the street. He was the rose that grew out of the concrete. The same ground where his body lay, like rose petals on a stony grave. Why do we fear each other from the lies of yesterday? I'll never know. But look at all these roses with petals on the ground. They call this one Mike Brown. I'm asking you to look at all these roses with petals on the ground. They call this one Trayvon Martin. I'm asking you to look at all these roses with petals on the ground. They call this one Tyshawn Lee. I'm asking you to look at all these roses with petals on the ground. It's far too many for me. The tears of my mother were spilled at his grave. She knows the cost the whole world could not repay. And when she should have felt our sympathy, all she heard was that her baby was guilty. Do we even have compassion? Do we even want to see? I'll never know. But look at all these roses with petals on the ground. They call this one Freddie Gray. I'm asking you to look at all these roses with petals on the ground. They call this one Eric Garner. I'm asking you to look at all these roses with petals on the ground. They call this one Sandra Bland. I'm asking you to look at all these roses with petals on the ground. Every woman, every man. Sometimes I wonder if you were more than a number, would you ever see how beautiful and special and precious you were? Somebody told me that if only, if only you would better decide you would still be alive. But I'm asking you to look at all these roses with petals on the ground, like the ones from Sandy Hook. I'm asking you to look at all these roses with petals on the ground, because they will change the story in our history books. So while we can, let's look at all these roses, say a prayer for all these roses, shout and march for all these roses with petals on the ground. The blood of my brother was spilled in the street. He was the rose that grew out of the concrete. When I first heard that song a year ago, it felt like that first evening with 10,000 fathers when I sat at the dinner table afterward and finally broke. I had been so disconnected from myself and my neighbor that I didn't even know who Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tyshawn Lee, Freddie Gray, Eric Garner, and Sandra Bland were. I had convinced myself that their stories were sad, but ultimately drummed up narratives by the, quote, lamestream media, unquote, to attack white people to attack police officers, to pass gun control policies, that they had all done something wrong that caused it, and that black people were unfortunately unwilling to see the reality, all while denying that that was racist. It took three years of deep spiritual healing for me to even hear their names as anything beyond that, and I'm so sorry for that. This web of modern American evangelical theology is far more complex and deeply spun than I have presented in this story, and I can't begin to pretend that I have some deep wisdom that can help America overcome our racial tensions. 
I can't pretend like I can speak on behalf of African Americans and, res- and represent their pain to my small sphere of influence, but I just want to say to people like Dee that I hear you asking me to look, and that I'm looking, finally looking, at the petals on the ground. So this was definitely the longest article that I have written and will uh, will be featuring on this podcast. Uh, this was before my word count limits. Uh, you know, I don't have too strict of limits, but I try to keep them normally around uh, anywhere from fifteen hundred to two thousand words. And but this one went a bit over that. But the. One thing looking back on this that I found really interesting was the theme of empathy that I was bringing up. And the reason why is that John Piper and Desiring God have been focusing a bit on empathy this last year. And in this article that I'd written came out before that and was actually critiquing them. And so um, Joe Rigney, who ended up taking over Bethlehem uh, Seminary and or College and Seminary, where John Piper had been, um, John Piper, when when they hired Joe Rigney, John Piper called him an intimidating listener, and and Rigney was was so excited about being called an intimidating listener that he actually retweeted it and said that uh, he'll he'll probably refer to himself as an intimidating listener, and and so this guy this intimidating listener uh, who is in charge of their seminary, he, he basically decided to channel his inner C.S. Lewis this year with, uh, by writing with his imaginary friend Wormwood. And so he started writing against empathy. He said, Empathy is a power tool in the hands of the weak and suffering. By it, we can so weaponize victims that they and those who hide behind them are indulged at every turn without regard for whether such indulgence is wise or prudent or good for them. He said, Empathy is the sort of thing that you've got someone drowning or, or they're in quicksand and they're sinking. And what empathy wants to do is jump into the quicksand with them, both feet, and it feels like that's going to be more loving because they're going to feel like, I'm glad you're here with me in the quicksand. And the problem is you're both now sinking. So he's basically arguing that empathy is sin, empathy is dangerous, and and so you know we need to caution against empathy. And Shane Moe is a, a, a therapist, and, and he, he pointed out this is um, this was in an article on uh, Baptist News Global that was not written by me. It was written by somebody else, by Mark Wingfield, and um, uh, called "Have You Heard the One About Empathy Being a Sin?" And so um, Shane Mo said that, that these people who are writing against empathy, he said they quote appear to assume that empathy inherently makes one unt- untethered, that that one can't experience empathy towards someone else without losing oneself, getting hijacked, or sort of becoming the other in belief or practice. He said, if someone is saying that you can't experience empathy without being compromised by another person, there's a good chance they're projecting out of their own psychosocial emotional boundary deficits, lack of emotional intelligence, or absence of self-differentiation. 
and he said that it feeds perfectly into their narcissism and psychological dependence upon maintaining power and control. And I think that's really a, a great insight because it this is exactly who these these men are, these uh, these patriarchs at desiring God is they have this hierarchy of men maintaining power and control. And I will provide plenty of, of, of proof for that throughout the podcast. If you, if you doubt that, just look at the intro to the podcast and you see those quotes by John Piper of, about women. Uh, that Those, I think, illustrate exactly what I'm talking here about here. So, uh, But basically, you combine this anti-empathy rhetoric over the last year with the anti-CRT, critical race theory rhetoric, that's been coming out from a lot of these conservative, complementarian, patriarchal, reformed, Calvinist uh, seminaries and and ministries. And they're talking about how CRT is the, the biggest threat to the gospel and, um, and all this. And then they're also worshiping Jonathan Edwards, who, you know, I mentioned in the article... And, and John Piper called him a hero, even though he owned slaves. And, and Piper even mentioned that, oh, yeah, he owned slaves, but he's a hero. And, um, and so there's uh, one particular article, uh, another one that critiques this uh, uh, concept of um, these reformed guys uh, promoting Jonathan Edwards. And um, I want to share a quote from this article, and I'll put... Uh, I'll put a link to it in the in the show notes. This article was written by Daniel Clevin. And so he says, quote, here I need to pause and ask a question. Who gets to decide who the giants of the Christian faith are? What are the qualifications for such an elevation of status? Here it appears to be theological precision and being a brilliant thinker, a man of great learning and religion. This, to me, is part of the problem. Our criteria for giant of the Christian faith is ethically anemic. It elevates intellect and ignores the obedience of love and justice. We elevate heroes based on their theology and then find ourselves in a conundrum. Now what do we do with their glaring inconsistencies? Maybe we need to go all the way back to square one and reevaluate what makes a giant and only hold those in esteem who are actually worthy of imitation, not just those who intellectually stimulate us through their books. And then he also said, I must take issue with this insight, which Burns credits to Piper, quote, it is not his theology that is to blame, only his sin. Reformed theology did not produce a heart to own slavery, unquote. He says, unfortunately, I don't think that it is this simple. Reformed theology fit perfectly with the hierarchical view of the world that both Edwards and Dabney shared, i.e., God has sovereignly appointed each to his proper place. It was just this intertwining of Reformed theology and white supremacy that started me on this project. The more I have dug into this, the less I am convinced that, quote, it is not their theology that is to blame. I fear that it is indeed their theology that bears at least some of the blame. Whether the theology actively contributed to white supremacy and enslavement, which it did at times, or passively failed to produce the necessary works of love or the impetus to dismantle enslavement and racism, the theology seems very much to blame. So I'm really thankful for scholars beginning to point out that not only are these hierarchies cultural things and historical things, but there's a theological underpinning 
going on here. There are views of of God, of a hierarchical God, that is informing the way these men uh, posture themselves with power over others and dismiss others and dismiss having empathy for those below their their power. And so, I think that these are. Um, these are critiques that are only going to continue, and uh, these are definitely critiques that you're going to be hearing on this podcast. So where do we go from here? How do we open up from from here? And, and I've got a few different practical ideas I wanted to mention. One is uh, this last year I participated somewhat. I, I was a little inconsistent because I had a lot going on with school and stuff, but um, in having a reading group. So we had a reading group that would read some books that were written by specifically black authors. And, uh, and so once a month we would get on zoom and discuss it. That's one idea that you can do. Some of my book recommendations, uh, would be, I'm still here, black dignity in a world made for whiteness by Austin Shanning Brown. Also, I Bring the Voices of My People, A Womanist Vision for Racial Reconciliation by Shaniqua Walker Barnes. And then Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores by Dominique Dubois Gilliard. Those three books were really helpful for me, and I highly recommend if you're looking for something to start with, definitely look at those. There's also movies out there. And I'll say this, when I was a really big conservative, I really struggled with movies that depicted racism, like... 12 Years a Slave or others like that because I thought, oh, this is just Hollywood trying to, you know, race bait and everything. But, you know, now I'm, I'm, I see it completely differently. And, and I think it's important for us to watch these movies because they help open us up to actually seeing the way these people were treated and the way and the, the, the deep wounds that, that many people have. It's important for us not just to read about those wounds, but to actually see it and to see the emotion in their eyes. Also, uh, looking at poetry and the spirituals, I wrote an article this past year about uh, singing the spirituals with respect, and 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 also looking at there's there are different uh, liturgy books out there you can get specifically with. Uh, either Negro spirituals or liturgies of slaves or, you know, just different liturgies that have written, been written by by suffering and, and oppressed people over the last couple hundred years. And um, so I would definitely recommend getting some of those. But really, all, all this is, is about, it's about getting in touch with your own humanity, but also getting in touch with the humanity of others. and And not just doing that as some kind of uh, emotional exercise, but getting in touch with those emotions and 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 feeling the the, the pain of yourself and and of others to a point where you are willing to ask how your theology has numbed you to that pain. How has your theology numbed you to your own pain? How has it numbed you to the pain of others? And and then. When, when you go through those exercises and you're willing to be honest with yourself about, about how your theology has influenced these things, I think the, the deconstruction process, it, it, it's actually a healing thing. It's not, oh, I'm just tearing down everything that I used to believe in, but it's like, we, we got we to gotta dismantle these walls. And, and that's opening you up to see reality, to see what's around you, to see who's around you, and to see the light to let the light 
shine into your wounds, and you can then heal yourself as well. So speaking of getting in touch with your own humanity and the humanity of others, we're going to be doing something, a little bit of a change of pace for our next two episodes. Two of the groups that often do not see their each other's humanity are Christians and atheists. There's a lot of Christian versus atheist apologetic videos out there and, and debates out there. And so uh, the other night I got together with an atheist named Richard Dixon. He is he, he used to be a Christian and deconverted and is now an atheist. And he is a, also a scientist and a journalist from England. And so, uh, you know, with me having five kids, uh, I, I can't really do a ton of interviews during the day. So I stayed up till uh, about one o'clock in the morning when we got started. And he and then he it was six o'clock his time. So we went until like 2.30 in the morning my time and had a really good conversation. It was not Christian versus atheist. It was getting to, um, you know, just getting to know one another and, and discovering our own humanity and, and, and discovering some of our, our frustrations and, and then seeing the humanity in those who even frustrate the each of us. And so... Uh, that was uh, it was a very good conversation. I'll probably break it up into two different episodes because it was an hour and a half and it was pretty long. So, uh, but that's what we're where we're going to be going in our next episodes of the opening. I don't think that the church has integrity to speak any good news at all until the church actually understands the reality that. It is living and has crafted bad news in public policy. It has established theological foundations for oppression that have lived throughout the times and only changed shape over the generations, but has not been repented of. Bad theology always produces diminished psychology. Diminished psychology produces dysfunctional sociology. Dysfunctional sociology always produces oppressive anthropology, and then they always produce oppressive economics and ideologies. So it all flows from bad theology. Your notion of God is wrong or flawed. Your notion of self and others and power is wrong. Thank you for listening to The Opening Podcast with Rick Pitcock. The Opening is a podcast that deconstructs the power dynamics of religious hierarchies and opens us up to healthy relationship. For more information about today's episode, please check out rickpitcock.com and follow on social media at Rick Pitcock.